0: Welcome. Uh, This evening we are continuing in our series called Journey with John. We have been on this journey with John as he recounts the life of Jesus uh, and we're going through his book. And we've been taking it very intentionally, very methodically, and we're working to uh, take it a little bit at a time so we can chew on it and think about it and let it sink in. As we begin tonight, I will tell you that I do love technology, and uh, as you probably have recognized, we've been having a little bit of trouble with our clicker, and so uh, they gave me a new one tonight, it's fancy, it's got, it's got, I mean, it's the real deal, it's the Cadillac of clickers, I think. Um, it's got the forward button, the back button, it's got a little green laser, so it's a lot more bright. Also, they made sure to tell me, and I'm not sure why, they said it's got a built-in timer on it. So, anyway, if we go along tonight, you know, it's technology. What are you going to do? I mean, the timer's not working, I guess. If you're in your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And guys, if you could put those uh, monitors on presenter mode, that'd be ultra helpful. Uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 is where we're going to be tonight. And uh, you thought the sermon about money made you uncomfortable this morning. Well, (laughs) just fasten your seats. We're going to have one that's give preachers and churches a lot of consternation over the years. And uh, I think because when we delve into it, there's so many things that we come into presuming that we maybe miss some larger lessons. So that's hopefully what we're going to talk about tonight as we open John's gospel and look at uh, this story of Jesus changing water into wine. Here's the text. On the third day, A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples also had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glories, his glory, and his disciples believed in him. so join me on a trip as we go to Cana. Nathaniel famously asked in chapter one he said when he met the Messiah who when he found out he was from Nazareth, he said, "Can anything good come from there?" What I find is interesting is that Jesus now goes to Nathanael's backyard. We learn later in the text in chapter 21 of John that Nathanael was from Cana. And so here is Jesus in his own backyard doing something that had never been done in Jesus' life or really, I presume, in Cana. Something like this was unique. It was special. It was a change from the good to the best. Jesus. Made something good happen in what could have potentially been a bad situation. First of all, a little bit of cultural understanding. Um, To us, you and I, weddings are a relatively small affair. I've never been to a ceremony that lasted more than an hour. And the one that lasted almost an hour, people were like, come on, come on, let's go. They had a lot of things going, right? In the Jewish world, a wedding was a feast, it was a celebration that lasted not just hours, it lasted days. It was a huge, massive celebration feast. In our culture, it is up to the bride's family to pay the expenses, generally speaking, of the wedding and things like that. You might work out special arrangements, but generally it's expected to be on the bride's family unless you speak otherwise. In that culture, it's on the groom's family. It's the bridegroom. And so they don't just have the responsibility of planning the ceremony. They have the responsibility of planning the party, the feast. It was a huge social faux pas to run out of wine and food before the celebration was over. And um, so as we read through this, something that we see as like, this is kind of a strange story. In that culture, it was a pretty big deal. Yeah, three days into the wedding ceremony to to have run out of wine in that culture was huge in fact i was reading one commentary that said the groom's family could have been liable to a lawsuit and that would have been a, a very understood custom of the time so we're we're looking at this text through western eyes and this is a culture very uh, this is a story very much steeped in eastern culture so Uh, understand that as we come to it, we have some misunderstandings about it, we have some questions about it, that's going to be very normal because we are steeped in that culture. I use a couple of examples just to share that with you. So the first, the critical question of this whole, this entire story is do you trust him? Do you trust what he said he's going to do? We talked this morning <clears throat> about how giving is, is really a big trust issue. That's, that's where people, most people get hung up on it. And in this story, we see the basis of faith starting with Jesus and his disciples. Are you going to trust that Jesus can do And now he wasn't promising anything here. In fact, it seems uh, from about the middle of the story that he says, this is not my time. This is not my hour. You know, He's on a different schedule than his mother is. But he proceeds anyway. And verse 11 uh, of, I know it's at the end, but he says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Now we go, we, we latch on that, we say, aha, this is the first miracle, and it kind of gets into our trivia brains that way. But really what John's pointing to is the last half of that verse. He says, and his disciples believed in him. In the Gospel of John, you see this pattern of a miracle or a sign, and the purpose, the point of the miracle of the sign is to push the people toward belief, To to... Not push them. Maybe that's a bad way to say it, but to lead them to a point where they go, "If he can do that, then I can trust him. If if he is in charge of that, if he has authority to do that, I don't have any trouble trusting him." Um, turn to John chapter four, verses forty-six through forty-eight. <clears throat> a couple of chapters over, and uh, there. We read the story of Jesus and a Samaritan woman. I'm sorry, that's not the Samaritan woman story. But uh, verse 46, when he's after he's once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged to come begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now look what he says in verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. It's no coincidence that this man whose son was asking to be healed was from Cana in Galilee. When, I mean, when he heard that that guy who did that back at the wedding was back, he understood something that is this guy has some kind of authority some kind of of ability some there's something that makes Jesus special and different and if he can do that perhaps he can do this the sign in the, the of John chapter 2 of changing water to wine led many to believe led his disciples to believe but don't misunderstand it wasn't just the disciples You know in a culture like that, that word got out, that that somebody said, wait a second, that wasn't, we were out. We were, what do you mean we were out? There's a guy over here, he told us to fill the jars. I mean, you know how human beings kind of work, right? And, and that kind of gossip train begins to roll. Okay, Jesus had a legacy. He had, he, he was, uh, certainly at Cana in Galilee, he left an impression. And because of that, he was able to do, he was able, The signs and wonders allowed him to lead the people to believe. And in John chapter 4, he even seems to almost be frustrated. Unless you people see these things, you don't believe. John's entire point is that we might believe in spite of the lack of the signs and wonders. John chapter 14, Jesus famously said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Now, he's... Jesus, from the first miracle to the very last miracle of the resurrection, he is continually asking them to trust him. <clears throat> in verse of chapter fourteen, verse eleven, in that, that same prayer, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Catch this, or at or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Did you, I need you to trust me. And that may be hard because as we studied in chapter 1, they, they scarcely knew who Jesus was. But as they follow him and as they watch him, it's not about the miracles, it's about who's doing the miracles and do we trust him? Believe me. It's a good question for you. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? The point is that we, you and I, that we have the opportunity to believe without the signs. I know for some people that's a little frustrating. I've heard people say, I wish we had a sign. I wish we could see a miracle. You know? Can you imagine what it would be like if Jesus did a miracle He came into the building during worship and he did something like Changing water to wine, like healing someone who had been blind by telling a lame man to get up and walk. And it's less impressive than you might think, at least according to the accounts. Because even when Jesus did the miracles, most people wanted to argue about the miracles. Most people wanted to argue about what happened, why it happened, instead of the whole point, which was to trust him. John chapter 20, verse 30, which is where John is leading. To me, that is his ultimate crescendo. And we've read it a couple of times in this series. We're going to read it many times over because that's the whole point, what he's getting to, the reason he wrote the book. Jesus I'm sorry. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John understands. The, the, the Apostle Paul, when he writes in 1 Corinthians, he tells us in the great chapter on love, he says, there's going to come a time when all that stuff stops And the only thing you have left to do is to trust in Jesus and to love one another and to love God. Can you do that without the miracles? Are you able to do that, church? It's a critical question. Now, of course, Mary trusted him implicitly. Um, In verse 5, John records, His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now this comes right after he says, in essence, Mom, what are you doing? This is not, you know, it's a classic, Mom, what are you doing? You're embarrassing me. You know, Jesus had that experience. No, it was, this is not the place, this is not the time. But his mother knew something that the disciples didn't, that the people at the wedding didn't. She had known this from that time, 30 years ago, when she carried him in the womb, that there was something different, there was something special, there was something unique. And, of course, all mothers inherently believe this about their children, okay? But Mary was the mother who was right about it. She said, do whatever he tells you. I love that. I do. I think that gives us such a beautiful picture of Mary's heart. Now, I want you to think for just a second. There were six stone jars. John tells us they held maybe 20, 30 gallons of water. So doing our very complex math, we can figure that they were having to add, uh, potentially, I mean, if they were all the way empty, 120 to 180 gallons of water. If I do a little more math and I multiply by 8 pounds per gallon of water, I figure out that they had to move about a half, maybe three-quarters of a ton of water in a time before modern plumbing. It wasn't like they could pull the garden hose and fill that up. These were six heavy stone jars. I don't know if they moved them or how that all worked. The, the Scripture doesn't say. My only point is when Mary says, do whatever he tells you, <clears throat> the process of filling the jars with water And getting the jars to the water or getting the water to the jars was no small task. It took work. It took effort. It took, like, what in the world are we doing? This ceremonial washing is all done. why, Why are we filling these jars up again? This is stupid. This is ridiculous. Those conversations surely must have been had. And my point is that when we trust Jesus, for those that trust him, There is a pure, beautiful attitude of the disciple which says, I don't understand it. That does not make sense to me. In fact, this is rather inconvenient and and a lot uncomfortable. But because it's Jesus, I'll do whatever he asks. What's What's your trust level like? Um, This is not the only place in the scripture, by the way, where Jesus had to, when he asked someone in a a strange position to do a hard thing. In John chapter 3, verse 7, he's going to tell a grown man, Nicodemus, he's going to tell him, if you want to be in the kingdom, you must be born again. And Nicodemus has the same natural reaction, except for church folks who've heard that phrase a whole lot, and they're used to it, so they didn't even pay attention to it. But for Nicodemus hearing the first time, born again, what are you talking about? I can't, uh, can a man be born from his mother's womb twice? No, this is impossible. What are you talking about, Jesus? This is a hard thing that Jesus asked Nicodemus to do. In chapter 5, verse 8, <clears throat> Jesus tells a paralyzed man, a man who's been an invalid, he tells him to get up, to take up your mat and walk. You see? Even in Jesus' ministry, he comes to this point where, okay, you believe me? Believing's one thing. I want to see if you trust me. And sometimes the thing which Jesus asks us to do is something which does not make sense, is difficult to do, is out of our comfort zone. What in the world is Jesus asking of me? To the blind man, in chapter 9, verse 7, he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He says, I want you to wash. Wash? What's what difference does the washing make? What difference does the pool of Siloam make? What does this have to do with anything? Jesus asked him to do something that's difficult and uncomfortable <clears throat> and unusual. Chapter eleven, verse thirty nine, at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, surrounded by the other tombs, in a whirl in a in a <clears throat> parcel of land that is full of the dead, Jesus says, roll away the stone. Roll away the stone. I'm sorry, what? You understand this is the the cemetery, right? This This is the last stop, Jesus. He's been in there four days, not to be crude about it, but there's probably a little stank going on. What in the world? And see, trusting Jesus is this continual, it's not a one-time thing. I love that Isaiah did this this morning. I love the way his dad asked it. He didn't say, do you believe, yes or no. I mean, not that that's bad, I'm not picking on anybody. But he said, tell me what you believe. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now you know and I know that he's going to have to answer that question again and again and again throughout his walk. That question is not a one-time deal. you got to ask yourself that question over and over again. Whether you are 11 or 38 or 99, if you are a disciple of Jesus, the question often comes back to, Do I trust Him? And if I do, am I willing to do whatever He tells me to do? May we be, may we be like they were. May we have the heart of Mary. Would you do whatever he tells you to do? Are you following him? Are you trusting him? Are you seeking him? Are you sharing him? Are you doing all he said to do? Or, or are you just doing the things he told you to do? Which are comfortable for you. There's a difference there. Example number one. <clears throat> Jesus said, if you believe and you're baptized, you will be saved. Now on a Sunday night, Church of Christ crowd, I'm not expecting anyone after the sermon to come up and say, You, how dare you preach that verse? If anything, I'll get a bunch of people saying, oh, that was the meat right there, that's what we needed to hear. No, that's so milk, (laughs) that is so basic and elementary. Okay? You already believe that, so let me try another one on you. Jesus said to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. There wasn't a caveat in there, there wasn't a, a clause that gave you an exemption Jesus asked you to do the very thing he did himself. Up to even hanging on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you, you've been persecuted. I know. I mean, you, it's pretty close to that level, right? And you have way more reason to withhold your forgiveness. And you don't, I'm not going to pray for them. They're beyond salvation. I mean, they need a little time and eternal punishment. How dare you? How dare us? But this is one of those that, you know, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Are you willing to do whatever he tells us to do? Example number three. Jesus told us that on the day, on the last day, there's, there's going to be a test. And the test is very simply this. Did you feed the hungry? Did you give water to the thirsty? Did you visit those in prison? Did you clothe the naked? He says, that's what I'm going to ask about. I don't really want to do those things because it makes me uncomfortable. I'd rather you talk about baptism a little more, please, because I've done that. I know I'm good there. The question is do you trust him and do you trust him enough to do whatever he tells you to do in spite of it making you uncomfortable All right Number 2 with Jesus we understand that the best is yet to come The water was used for ceremonial washing this was common water this I mean it had a certain purpose but it was not an uncommon thing to see And Jesus changed it to wine And he didn't just change it to wine, he changed it to the really good wine. i got to be honest, I don't know what that means. I, uh, for a lot of reasons that are not spiritual at all, have never drank a drop of alcohol. I don't know what really good stuff tastes like. I wouldn't know the difference. The controversy here, this is where we get caught up and I think it's just, I think we just miss out. Some of those things where Jesus does a miracle and people are standing back going, was it alcoholic wine? Nah, no. It's it's extra grapey wine. That debate has filled up countless numbers of commentaries. I don't think that was the point. I'm not advocating alcoholic or extra grapey, either one. I don't have a dog in this fight. The point, according to John, is that Jesus' wine was different, and it wasn't alcoholic, and it wasn't extra grapey. It was far better than any wine they had ever tasted, ever. Now, what exactly it contained, I don't know, and I think it misses the point to delve into it. I think the point is simply this, that Jesus changes the common and the ordinary into things which are extraordinary. And he did that with water, but what he really, the greatest miracle was when he did that with people. When he took the common and the ordinary and the uneducated disciples and he made them into the pillars of the church. When he took the people who were the lowly and the forgotten and and the left behind and he said, you matter too. Jesus changed anything he came into contact with. Any person he came into contact with, he made them better. Jesus loves you as you are, but he does not... Ever leave you as you are. He didn't leave the water the same. And he ain't going to leave you the same. In in John chapter 13 verse 8. There's this interesting account of Jesus washing the disciples feet. And I bring this up because the water that Jesus used was washing for... The ceremonial washing. Now, this is, would have been a different action, okay? The water in Cana was, this was not for foot washing. It was a different kind of water, but it was the same purpose, the ceremonial washing. And in chapter 13, there's this inter, in, interesting interaction in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter. Now, Simon Peter's walked with him for three years. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless I wash... Peter had followed him all the way. I mean, he he had been a pretty faithful disciple. And Jesus comes to this point and says, If I can't wash your feet, Peter, you don't belong with me. You missed the whole point of what following me is all about. I must wash you. And if I can't, then you can't be a part of me. The people... Peter, the washing that had been done, they had all been experienced that before. It it wasn't the first time they probably had had their feet washed. It wasn't the first time the wedding guests had done the ceremonial washing. But it was the first time, at least in John chapter 13, where the disciples had been washed by Jesus. And I think that's an important point. The washing of Jesus isn't just what happens on day one, but it's the continual washing. It's the washing of rebirth and renewal in, in uh, Second Timothy, I think it is. Not every change in life is good, right? Sometimes you change things and it ends up being for the worse. But with Jesus, every time he changes, there's a change involved. It's always for the better. That's the whole point of the water to wine to me is not to argue, get on one side of the fence or the other. It's to acknowledge that with Jesus, whatever, whatever kind of change is involved, it's going to be better. You should be better walking with Jesus now than you were yesterday walking with Jesus, than you were last year walking with Jesus, than you were ten years ago walking with Jesus. You should be better. The disciples were better Not because of what they did, but because of what he was doing in them. Unless you let me wash you, you can have no part. All right, the last point. The challenge is to let Jesus transform you. Jesus changed the water to wine, but the greatest, the absolute most amazing miracle that he still does is the change he wreaks within our hearts Change what he brings to the life. And if you'll let him, he will penetrate your stone-cold, impervious heart. And starting at the water, he'll empty what's inside. And he will radically transform everything that is into something far better. Um, Last verse, and this is one not in John, so you can turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 I tell you this brothers Paul writes flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable behold I tell you a mystery we shall all not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 15 verse 50 is just as mysterious as John chapter 2. How are we going to be changed? What am I going to look like? What's the resurrection body going to be like? We don't get the answer to that. But I can tell you, we will be Far, far better than we are now. I pray, I pray that you trust Jesus. I pray that you trust Him enough to do not just what you agree with, but even the things you disagree with. I pray that you trust Him enough to let Him transform you and make you better. This was the first of the greatest of Jesus miracles. This is the first of Jesus miracles, but the greatest miracle He does. Not in the water, the greatest miracle he does is within us. And if you haven't let Jesus transform you, I want to invite you to the water that you might be changed not just tonight, but in all the tonights to come. And uh, if you've been changed, but you've sort of let your wine go back to water, if you've been a little more watered down in your faith. If you're struggling, if you're challenged, if you need some prayers, encouragement, if you need something that we can help with, we'd be glad to. I want to call you to come forward. I'll meet you down front if you have any need as together we stand and sing.